I'm from a family of physicians and my mom was a nurse. My dad was a doctor and I was like the lone capitalist in the family, but they were hugely supportive of it. Peeling the onion back, analyzing a company was not dissimilar from what they were doing, trying to figure out a disease or diagnosis. Welcome to Distinctively Active Investing, Profiles and Perspectives, presented by Touchstone Investments. I'm Blake Moore, President and Chief Executive Officer of Touchstone. On this show, you'll find out what makes Touchstone and its portfolio managers distinctive. We share in-depth interviews with people who are actively engaged in leading and managing the Touchstone funds, and you will hear from other industry professionals as well. Will Musia is Portfolio Manager of the Touchstone Mid-Cap Growth Fund, as well as the Touchstone Growth Opportunities Fund. Westfield Capital Management serves as sub-advisor to the funds. Hi, I'm Mary Mock, Divisional Vice President for Touchstone Investments. Our guest today is Will Musia, CEO and CIO of Westfield Capital Management Company, LP, a growth equity boutique based in Boston. And since their founding in 1989, Westfield has used its GARP philosophy to build concentrated equity portfolios through bottom-up stock selection. Their sector specialists evaluate businesses up and down the market cap spectrum, and they have vast experience in their respective space. We begin today's conversation by discussing Will's upbringing and first foray into investing. Yeah, my first four in investing, I was I was kind of a stock junkie as a little kid. So I was kind of the oddball in the family. I had an uncle, my mother's brother, who was a stockbroker in Boston and was always my favorite uncle. Really jovial guy, super nice guy. We used to talk a little bit about what he did. And so in high school, whenever I got days off or if soccer practice was canceled for whatever reason, I would go into his office and I kind of got the bug watching him. And he taught me a little bit. And that was really what sparked the interest at an early age, literally when I was about 12. He almost had like a Peter Lynch type philosophy using street smarts and talking to people around different industries and what companies were doing well and not well. And this goes way back. There were these Cabbage Patch dolls that were really hot. And I didn't know anything about investing. And I went into him. I said, Uncle Charlie, these Cabbage Patch dolls are going crazy. You know, everyone's buying them. It's the big Christmas gift. So I ended up buying this company called Coleco. I think I put $800 in it or something. And anyway, it got bought out. And I can't, I literally can't remember the price, whether it was a double or a triple. And literally, I was like, wow, that's pretty cool. I like this game. So I think getting very lucky early on probably helped. But then I also got totally burned. He gave me some energy stock. And, you know, it was my first four into charts, too. I used to look at charts with him and I got burned on an energy name. So I learned very quickly, you know, it can, it can go wrong as often as it goes right. But it, it taught me a little bit about what risk taking, don't invest anything you can't afford to lose. No matter how good it sounds, it could totally reverse and, and go poorly. And then, you know, what it felt like when things, you know, could go well. So I was actually born in New Haven, Connecticut. My dad was an intern, went to Yale Medical School and was an intern at Yale New Haven. So I was born there and then we moved uh, to Boston, where he went into private practice for a couple of years. But I actually grew up in a Navajo reservation uh, in Gallup, New Mexico, first through fifth grade. And so my dad was the doctor who ran the clinic, and my mother was the nurse. And so they went to take care of the American Indians. Really fascinating time of my life. I have incredibly fond memories, obviously very different than a lot of my friends that 
grew up outside Boston and we did return to the same house just outside Boston for sixth grade. As I feel like as my dad, I have two brothers and he saw three looming college tuition someday. And so it was an incredible experience as a young person to kind of see how a different society lives that that they don't have the resources and materialism doesn't matter at all. And they kind of live off the land and take care of each other and probably had a big impact on me that's come through to today. And I was like the lone capitalist in the family. I'm incredibly caring and philanthropic as a human being, but it was kind of funny uh, where I literally was the only capitalist in, in our family. The rest of them were all saving the world and in much more noble endeavors, but they were hugely supportive of it. And, you know, I actually very much liked the healthcare side. And at an early age, investing in healthcare companies was kind of my thing because I was able to get real world data and information, you know, right from my family and family contacts. Kind of education was a big deal in my family. And peeling the onion back, analyzing a company was not dissimilar from what they were doing, trying to figure out a disease or diagnosis. And so, Yeah, it was all good all around. You know, after business school, I started interviewing with investment banks because that was kind of the cool job. It just wasn't me. I didn't really understand what I was getting into. But anyway, I got the kind of coveted investment banking job in Boston, and it was with a great firm and really good people I worked with. But I used to joke, some people drive to work, I flew to work. And just living on a plane and pulling all-nighters wasn't my thing because it wasn't really investing you know, bankers are are doing transactions and trying to get companies bought and sold or doing restructurings or IPOs. And I kind of, I took probably the wrong job for me. That said, it was great training. I did my two-year boot camp there. I learned a lot about financial modeling. I learned a lot about companies and industries, but I really missed the investment thing. And quality of life obviously is rough as a, you know, as a, an associate in banking. And so anyway, literally one of the institutional sales guys, I was leaving one night, I think it was like 11 o'clock or midnight going down the elevator and he had come in from entertaining clients and we started talking and he said, Will, seems like you really like stocks. Like, would you ever do, have you ever thought about going to the buy side? And I said, well, yeah, tell me about that. And he kind of started talking about it. And I had a few friends from business school that were working at, at very good investment firms. And I was envious a little bit of their schedules were their own. They had companies in when they wanted them to come in and the hours were more normal and it seemed a lot more interesting to me. And so I did kind of casually start looking around and there were three different firms in Boston uh, that I spoke to and was fortunate enough to get offers from what really attracted me to Westfield. In fairness, I will admit, yes, the, the head guys were in their 70s. So I knew someday, you know, perhaps there was an opportunity if I did well to take over. But what I really liked was the bottom-up stock analysis. They they really did it right. And I I enjoyed that. And they were kind of a dying breed of long-term investors. And I I think the whole world's gone hugely short-term investing. And being a long-term investor can be a big competitive advantage too. So they were growth at a reasonable price. And so it kind of dovetailed with what I liked. And so it was a a good culture, really good people. They did the work. And um, you know, their performance had been, you know, had been good and they were mostly high net worth. And it was an opportunity for me to really grow an institutional business there. So it was both exciting from a career change standpoint. I wanted to be on the buy side and, and to really invest and analyze stocks. But also it seemed like a great business opportunity to grow a new business to them uh, on the institutional side and, and 
diversify away from just high net worth. What would you say makes your firm different from all of your growth equity competitors that are out there? I think what really makes Westfield different, I mean, there's a couple things. One is just incredible domain expertise and knowledge. You know, the analysts at Westfield, they're career analysts. So at a lot of firms that the senior people and the most successful analysts get promoted away to portfolio manager, and then they they lose the expertise that built up. We have career analysts where these sector analysts and partners, they've been covering their space 10, 20 years. They kind of know all the players. And being deep dive sector expert, I think is a huge competitive advantage. The other thing that I've always said is you need to understand the fundamentals and do all the numbers, but you need to have psychology component as well to be a really successful investor. And so I feel like with our team, we have people that, yes, they are incredibly bright, work really hard. They understand all the financials and the fundamentals, but we spend a lot of time on kind of what's the setup? Where is the street expectations versus us? What's going to happen if they do this? And then, you know, the other thing is just, we're also long-term investors. And I feel like so many of our peers and competitors, it's all about who's going to make the quarter. I literally could care less about the quarter. If they can double earnings over the next three years or the stock price could double over the next three years, you know, that makes us very interested. So I I feel like being a long-term investor and really knowing your space and having a network, I can't tell you how important the industry network is. Everyone you call is clearly a sample size of one, but I think when you put them all together, that's how to build the mosaic and you can really corroborate your thesis or if it's not sounding right, you might walk away from it. So everything comes together. The other thing is just the passion for the business is really important. If you literally eat, sleep, and breathe stocks, you can work at Westfield Capital. If you don't, it's not going to work for you. It's just what we do. We all love it. And I I don't know, because I obviously don't work for my competitors or my peers. I meet a lot of people. There's some that, you know, have components of what we have, but it's, it's hard. I don't always see the passion in the detail and the work ethic in the drive that we have to kind of figure out where to go. You defined your investment process as one of GARP, growth at a reasonable price. What does GARP investing mean to you? Yeah, so I, I think of GARP investing a little more broadly maybe than just the definition. Like in my mind, if you say to someone, oh, work, growth at a reasonable price, they oftentimes I think some of them are closet value. And what I when I think of GARP, if you show me used car lot, I'll make you a bid, right? You may not like the bid, but I'll show you one. On the other hand, if there's a Ferrari, we're going to pay for a Ferrari. So there are really excellent companies that are growing at inordinately high rates. So someone who can literally grow revenue 20 or 30% while expanding margins, we will pay a lot for that. It's still growth at a reasonable price and we're disciplined on valuation. So we're not going to overpay, but the portfolio is pretty balanced. And so we do both secular and cyclical growth. And so growth at reasonable price for an industrial can be a different metric where you're looking for the proverbial 16% grower trading at 13 times. That's GARP. On the more innovative tech and biotech that we own, if there's a company that can literally grow earnings 30% plus for the next three years, I have no problem paying 30 times our forward estimate for that company. So to me, I like the, the definition broadly. I think overpaying for companies is a huge mistake. And I think a lot of people do it. And so we always have what we call our wish list. And so you need to be disciplined on price because you don't know when things are going to get rocky. 
And I, if you're overpaying going in, you know, you're, you're hoping to sell deer going out, forget it. More likely you're going to get hurt. And so we're very disciplined on the price we're paying. And we look at everything on a probably weighted expected value. And we just look at the percentage chance on our upside target versus the downside target. And that's what we really look at. And so our GARP discipline keeps us from overpaying on the way in. What are the biggest changes in the investment business that you've seen during your career? I mean, the biggest thing for sure is just this incredible proliferation of passive. And then the short-termism of these quant funds and smart beta and high frequency, just amazing to me that, you know, so much money is being run by the machines. And with, with the correction and the crash we saw with coronavirus in March, you could see this forced liquidation in delevering by the quant funds that took A plus companies down as much as lousy companies. <laughs> it had it reminded me of the 87 crash where I literally wasn't sure the capital markets were going to survive. And that's one thing that has really changed in my career, where particularly in the 90s, you know, bottom-up fundamental stock picking, you could do really well. The smaller the cap, the better you could do because there wasn't good street coverage and people would just ignore them. And, and you know, we did incredibly well for a, for a long time. And then the biggest change definitely is just this obsession with passive. And obviously, these big bench names have done very well because flows into passive. But when you have a reset and all the passive money hits sell, they all go down the same amount. And so in a weird sort of way, it actually really benefits active coming out of really turbulent periods because there's an opportunity to kind of upgrade quality almost for free. And that's almost like an oxymoron. And it maybe it sounds more like a credit fund or debt fund, but we look at it stocks too. I can sell XYZ and buy an A plus company at the same price. You, you don't get a lot of opportunities to do that, but because of the proliferation of passives, you know, they're just, there's no, distinction between good companies and bad companies itself. And so I think we need to take advantage of things like that. But the two biggest changes, definitely passive and short-termism. So over the next 10 years, what do you think will be the biggest trends that are going to drive market and investment performance? Listeners can take it with a grain of salt. I'm an active manager. I do think good active managers are going to do really well again, because you know, now you've got over 50% of assets in passive. Like at some point you get back to the, the inefficiency was so great when I got into the business in the early eighties. I mean, it was like shooting fish in a barrel in small cap. There were companies I would go see that had no Wall Street coverage. And you'd literally find a company growing at 20%, trading at six times earnings. It was really fun actually, because <laughs> if you did the work, you got rewarded. And I think going forward, We've become so crowded in ETFs and passive that there's going to be a really good opportunity for active again. And the other thing is to use time frame. I call it time frame arbitrage to your advantage. So much money, the hedge fund money, a lot of these quants, the high frequency guys, they're all looking at, you know, picking up pennies and nickels in front of a steamroller a hundred times a day. And so I think to make really big money, you actually have to be longer term focused and look at a franchise that can double or triple in size over five years. And that's where you want to be invested, not playing this game with the real short term players. So in small cap, I was just saying there's there used to be huge inefficiency and there's still inefficiency there. But you don't always have all the ducks in a row where you might have a really 
great business opportunity for a company, yet maybe a B management team. And so you don't always get everything, a big TAM, really good management team, new product cycle. And with mid cap, it's what I always called, it's the graduates, right? So the, the really good small cap companies that made it become mid. And what I like about mid is that they've got established franchises. A lot of times they're looking at potentially going internationally, which would accelerate revenue growth. They're looking at tuck in M&A that would accelerate revenue growth. And so you've got really quality businesses that can grow faster than the lar- their large cap brethren and still move the needle through geographic expansion, new product expansion and M&A. And then, you know, if you look back at just absolute return, I think mid cap on an absolute return basis has outperformed every other cap range. So it's always kind of been our sweet spot. Like we manage across the cap spectrum and we love all our children equally, but you know, we we're definitely known for, for mid cap growth. And it's, it's a space that, that we love getting in the investment business today. You're always going to have the headwind of passive in ETF, which is very low fee. And so it's active, I think is going to be a harder business uh, and a smaller business. So there won't be say as many jobs as there were in the eighties and nineties. I think it's an incredibly interesting industry. And the advice I guess I would give someone looking at the business is, do you love it? Like I, I've been doing this over 30 years. I jump out of bed every day to go to work. So if you don't love the game and want to grind and meet with companies and think and connect all the dots, you know, you're just not going to do well because the people who eat, sleep and breathe it, they're going to crush you. And so I wouldn't go into it if you think it's kind of cool or it might be okay, or maybe it pays well, like those aren't the right reasons. So I think it's going to be a tougher industry because of fee compression, right? You're competing with free, so you need to provide value. So the onus on performance is only going to go higher. And I think the good active managers that generate alpha are going to do really well. And a lot of other firms are going to go by the wayside. So I would the advice I would give is be very careful who you go work for. Make sure they have a repeatable discipline process and they're proven alpha generators. Because no matter what the story is or what they say, if they if whoever you're working for can't deliver, they're going to go out of business. So be really careful who you work for and then make sure the style, the investment style that you love or that makes sense to you is what the firm you're interviewing with does. Let's get to know you better outside of Westfield. What are your hobbies and interests? My favorite thing to do outside of work is surf. And it's I got into surf. I have four kids, two boys, two girls, and my two boys really got into surfing. My oldest son, got, it was my, it was a chance for me to spend more time with him. And he ended up going to Brown because we used to surf in Rhode Island a lot. I think he chose his college based on proximity to his favorite surf break. But for me, it's, that's my meditation. That's when I'm calm and relaxed. What I love about surfing is when you're out, it's so hard, by the way, it's the hardest sport I've ever done. When you're out surfing, all you think about is the next wave. Where's the pocket? Where do I get in here? Is that a right or a left? Oh, where was that rock? That's over. Okay, I should go this way. And so when I'm out there, totally disengaged from the world for an hour, and it's it's the greatest thing in the world. So, and then my my number three kid, my other son, is very very into surfing as well. So, from a family vacation standpoint, all our family vacations are surfing around the world, and it's just been an incredible eye opener. We usually combine it with some community service work wherever we go, and so it it creates a a really Surfing is a great vibe in general, the whole sport, but to be able to, co- we're fortunate enough to be able to combine it with, with travel. And it's uh, been really, really fun. Definitely my, 
my favorite hobby. I, I would say though, probably the most interesting place. It's just so different from the world that we live in in the U.S., where, as you may know, their you know their national GDP is happiness. And to just go around a country, we spent a week traveling around Bhutan. The roads are pretty tough, and some interesting places we had to stay. But the people are amazing, and they're they're monks that have nothing material, but they're incredibly happy and peaceful and kind. And so I would say, if I had to pick a place that was probably the most interesting, I would say Bhutan. It it was really fascinating. Not only the landscape and geography, which is just incredible, mountains and rivers and everywhere we, we went, but also the people are what really made it and just such a different lifestyle than we're used to. If you weren't in the investment business, what do you think you'd be doing for a career? If I wasn't in the investment business, what would I doing as a career? I've never really thought about that. I guess, I mean, one thing that I, I, the idea, like teaching definitely, I think would be of interest to me. I've been fortunate enough to, to teach a couple classes. Uh, one was at an MBA. One is with a program that Middlebury does, that's Middlebury College in Vermont. That's really an amazing program called Midcore. And so I, I think teaching would be really fun. Whether I could do it full time, I doubt it. That's the thing with the pace I like to work. I think it would be hard for me, but I I think teaching would probably be the only other thing I could imagine doing. That's something that comes to mind right now anyway. Lots of leaders have daily routines to help them stay focused. Do you do anything from a daily routine perspective to help you stay motivated throughout the day? You know, from a daily routine, I I don't need anything to to keep me motivated because I've I've always been really motivated. Uh, I'm fortunate enough to to do a job that I really love. You know, the one routine I have though is I need to work out every day or do something. It's not like I'm one of these gym rats lifting weights, but I'll either go for a run, I'll go for a bike, I'll do an online class. The a part of my routine, and I think you know, physical health is really as important as mental health. The other thing we started at Westfield maybe five years ago is we have a daily meditation at Westfield every day and. I don't push this on anyone. It's I read a lot about it. There was a fascinating study Harvard Medical School did and just heard about a lot of the benefits from meditation. And so I think meditation is a great way to clear your mind and calm your thinking. And some of my best ideas have popped in my head through meditation. So I think trying to, from a daily routine standpoint, trying to have both you know physical breaks and mental breaks uh, is something that I think is really important. So, Will, what's the best career advice you've ever received? I guess, you know, going back to some, you know, mentors I had early on in my career, best career advice, I guess, with things like if you work harder than everyone else, your chances of being successful are very high. And I think everyone has a different work ethic. And obviously, you enjoy what you do. It's easier to work harder. But early on, at the beginning of my career, I was definitely the first one and the last one to leave every day. And it was, it was like a pride thing. And so for, for career advice, I would just tell people, first of all, never give up. Like if you're really passionate about something, you know, work hard and never give up. And the other thing, and this is hard, obviously, is don't be afraid to fail. Like failing forward to me is so important. And I, I feel badly for a lot of the younger generation today and the younger kids, they always have to be perfect. They need perfect grades and perfect SATs and go to the perfect school. And you don't learn anything by doing that where you really learn is by making a mistake and failing, and then you get better the next time. So I would say, you know, you can't 
uh, you always say those the people who get luckiest practice the most, right? Or work the hardest. So funny how that works. But also just don't be afraid to fail and take risk and then learn from your failures and, and the risks you're taking. Thanks to you, Will, for sharing your insights today into your investment process, as well as personal interests and background. Until next time, I'm Mary Mock. Thank you for listening to Distinctively Active Investing. You can find the resources mentioned in the episode and learn all about Touchstone at www.touchstoneinvestments.com slash podcast. If you like the show, please share it with someone you know. We appreciate when you subscribe to the show and take the time to leave us a rating and review. Find our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. I'm Blake Moore, and from all of us at Touchstone Investments, thank you for listening. Alpha is the portion of a fund's total return that is unique to that fund and is independent of movements in the benchmark. Investment return and principal value of an investment in a fund will fluctuate so that investors' shares, when redeemed, may be worth more or less than their original cost. All investing involves risk. Performance data quoted is past performance, which is no guarantee of future results. The information provided is for general information purposes and is not investment advice. Opinions may change without notice based on economic, market, business, and other conditions. Please consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the fund carefully before investing. The prospectus and the summary prospectus contain this and other information about the fund. To obtain a prospectus or a summary prospectus, contact your financial professional or download and or request one at touchstoneinvestments.com resources or call Touchstone at 800-638-8194. Please read the prospectus and or summary prospectus carefully before investing. Touchstone funds are distributed by Touchstone Securities, Inc., a member FINRA and SIPC.